I heard many of you praying, and even I prayed myself when we talked about this idea of love. And I want us to think this morning as we consider this scripture, part of it is that we need to think collectively. And we've talked about, oh, there's just a few of us here. There's not, you know, there's a lot of people missing. And my first thought was that as well, what does it matter who's here and who's not here, right? It's not about how many butts are sitting in the chairs, right? It's about that we would glorify God. But, but there's something about that, about feeling a sense of like, this is not right, we're not all together, there are people missing. I know I felt this last week as several people were traveling, and then this week as there are several families that are out. It's like, this is just not right when we're not all together. And I think that's appropriate to feel. Um, it's not that we need more people to feel the presence of God, but there is something about us all being together. Um, and so as we think through this passage, I just want that to be an overarching thought as you think about collectively. We think, tend to think so individually, and a lot of this today that I'm going to talk about is, is thinking collectively. And so the last time I taught, I taught on James 4, uh, verse 11 and 12, and we talked about not speaking evil against your brother. And we talked about that speaking evil was to criticize, to, to overly criticize, to repeat these issues that they have, or to, to exaggerate these issues that your brother or sister might have. And as we do that, as we criticize, we tend to compare, we tend to look at each other, and then that tends to lead to judgment. We start to judge each other. And James said, if you judge your brother and sister, you're actually sitting in judgment of the gospel. He's, he used this term judge as condemning, as, sitting, as, as talking down on. And if we condemn our brothers and sisters, then we condemn the very gospel that saved us and that saved them. And he's very clear, there's only one judge, there's only one lawgiver, and that's God. Because who are you to judge your brother? But I also shared, there's this caveat, there's this other piece, that we are to judge each other. That we're to judge each other in this idea of restoration. We're to judge to restore each other to this fellowship with God and this fellowship with each other. And I shared that, and I had the next week probably three or four people come up to me and say, okay, I understood what you said, that there's this difference as we speak into each other's lives and as we make judgments with each other. We're not to condemn each other, but we're to do that to restore each other. I understand that in my head, but I have no idea what that looks like in real life. You've got to explain that more. And so we're going to break from James this week, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this was the first chapter, or the first spot in Scripture that kind of came to my mind as people brought that concern to me. Well, that's what we'll preach. That'll be great. And I started to read it, and I'm like, oh no, what am I doing? I do not want to preach this passage. So some things that we're going to talk about this morning as we look in the passage. We're going to talk about incest. We're going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about delivering people over to Satan. So if you can't pay attention this morning, I don't... Like Emmanuel says, if you can't get fired up about this, then your wood is wet, all right? Like, this should be easy to pay attention to. Like, these are some crazy things that we're going to talk about, but I hope to just walk through it and explain it so that we can understand what does it look like to judge for restoration. And so this is a passage that's not very commonly preached. You're not going to hear it preached over and over, okay? It's not going to hear this all the time on Christian radio. And I think it shows, it shows in the church that we don't understand this. We don't understand what it looks like to judge for restoration. And beyond our understanding or our misunderstanding, I think we have this pervasive individualism in our culture. Whether we like it or not, here as Americans, that we are just inundated with individualism. It's all about me and it's all about what I think and it's all about my life. 
And I think that affects the church, and then it affects also the way we read this scripture. We think when we read this, the way I was taught was to look at this from my perspective. What does this mean for me? Not what does this mean for us as a church? I remember when the Gospels even share with me, it was that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And that's true, that's a part of it, but that's just a little piece of this big Gospel, this big God that we serve. And I even experienced that this weekend, this past week. You guys know that my wife is gone, my children are gone, the house is empty. And at first, with work and those things, I was keeping busy, I had things to do. But as I got busy and as I felt productive, I felt like I didn't really need other people. Like, this is pretty good. All the things that I can get done, all the things that I can accomplish, and it's really, it's not that productive for me to actually interact with other people. And I was even feeling this yesterday with Emmanuel. I was studying, and we were talking about getting together, we are going to play tennis, we are going to hang out, and there was a part of me going back and forth, do I play tennis, do I study more, do I do this, can I get something done? I can clean the house, I can do this, I can be really effective, really efficient, but I knew, no, I need the body, I need to be around people. And so we have to fight that. It's not natural to us. We are a part of something bigger. That if we've received this gospel, God has brought us into his family. And now we're not just our own lives, but we share this life together, us as a church. We talk about that all the time, that we're a family, that we're brothers and sisters. And so we need to act like that. We need to think like that. Thinking collectively versus just thinking about ourselves. So as we consider this passage, as we walk through this, we'll look at it individually, but we need to think about it also collectively. Okay, what does this mean for us? All right, what does it mean for us to confront each other? What does it mean for us to have experience or see discipline in the body? And not just think about what it means for me. So chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man and his, a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges, judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So that's a lot. What does all that mean? What are we supposed to do with that? And the way we're going to do this is we're going to go through in four parts. We're going we're to look at the situation, what was actually occurring. We're going to look at what Paul recommended. What's the required response? What are we supposed to do in this situation? 
And we're going to consider what are the reasons that we use as excuses that we don't do this, that we hesitate, that we resist to follow through. But why are the reasons that we have to do this, that this is right, that this is biblical? And then at the end, I'm just going to share a few implications about what this looks like, the difference between insiders, those in the church, and then outsiders, those outside the church, the non-believers. So first is the situation. He says in verse 1, there's sexual immorality among you. This was in the church. This was part of the church. And that sexual morality, it's actually the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography, our English word pornography. All right? And that's this overall arching word that means any sexual act, activity, relationship that's outside of a biblical marriage. Anything that's outside of that. So it can mean adultery, which is outside of that. It can mean premarital sex, which is outside of that. It can mean homosexual sex, which is outside of that. Anything at all that's outside of what God created in regards to marital sex. Okay? And not only was it non-biblical, it was something that Paul says even the pagans don't do this. Even those outside the church would be, can't believe what's going on, can't believe what's happening in the church. For a man has his father's wife. And so what this most likely means is that a man has a sexual relationship with his father's wife, which is probably his stepmother. If it was his mother, it would probably say it a little bit differently. But regardless, it's incest. Regardless, we don't know if the, if the father is alive, if the father is dead, if she's a widow. But this is a, a relationship where there shouldn't be marriage between, there shouldn't be sexual relations between these two individuals. And it says has. It says he has his wife. Or it's ongoing. It means that they've had this relationship, they're having this relationship, and there's plans to continue having this relationship. Okay? It's unrepentant sin. It's going on. It's not going to stop. It's not a one-time stand. And Paul says, you are arrogant. This is happening within the body. This is going on. It doesn't even happen in the world. And yet you are arrogant. You are proud of your church. You're claiming to have this wonderful church where the Holy Spirit is moving. You're speaking in tongues. You're doing all these gifts. And yet within your body is division. Within your body, you're not caring for the poor. Within your body, there's idolatry and there's sexual immorality. There's acts like this going on in the church. And yet you're proud of the church. You're claiming to have this great faith. They were not humble. Their behavior didn't demonstrate the gospel. So that's the situation. And what does Paul say is the required response? Look at the last part of verse 2. It says, Ought you not rather to mourn? You should consider this situation. You need to understand this situation for what it is. You need to look at it through a biblical perspective. You need to think about yourself as a part of this situation. But you also need to think about yourself as the body as a part of this situation. And you need to mourn. You need to be broken about that this is going on church. This sin, this activity is reflecting the church. But more than that, it's reflective on the gospel. We proclaim this gospel, yet this is going on. And so in addition to mourn, he also says that this man should be removed. But I want to be very clear that this is the end of the process. Okay? That this is the very last step in the process. We have to believe that Paul or someone else in the Corinthian church, that they have been addressing this situation, that they've been confronting this individual, that they've been clarifying the situation. They've gone to him repeated times, and he continued to be unrepentant. He continued to remain in this situation. 
So that's this process of discipline. But before the process of discipline, I think it's the process of discipleship. That we're to be in discipleship, and as we talk about, we're to be interacting in each other's lives. We're to be speaking in each other's lives and sharing the truth. And as we see sin in each other's life, we're to call that out. We're to address that. We're to confess our sins to each other, and we're to repent. And we're to do that in each other's lives. And so that has to happen before. That's that's a, a preventive to go to this step. That's preventive to go to discipline. It's for us to actually interact in each other's lives. And so I want to share this quote. This is from Tim Keller. And this is part of a marriage book, actually. And we were reading this in chapter 4 of The Meaning of Marriage. And I'm like, oh, oh, this is this is discipleship. This is what discipleship is supposed to look like. This is what, when we speak in each other's life, this is exactly what's in my heart. This is exactly what I see. And so I want to share that. And he uses this term friend as he's talking about this friendship, this bond that we should have as believers and how we, in that friendship, are to sanctify each other. Okay, that happens in marriage, but it also happens in the body. So I want you to listen to this quote. He says, Christian friends are not only to be honest, are not only to honestly confess their own sins to each other, James 5, 16, but they are to lovingly point out their friend's sins if he or she is blind to them, Romans 15, 14. You should give your Christian friends hunting licenses, all right, hunting licenses, to confront you if you are failing to live in line with your commitments, Galatians 6, 1. Christian friends are to stir one another up even provoking one another to think and live biblically. Hebrews 10.24 This isn't to happen infrequently, but should happen at a very concrete level every day. Hebrews 3.13 Christian friends admit wrongs, offer or ask forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32, and take steps to reconcile when one disappoints another. Matthew 5.23 and Matthew 18.15 That's a summary statement of what discipleship should look like. That's a summary statement of what our transparency, our interaction with each other should look like. Those are the things that should be going on. And those are preventative things that keep us from moving in this process of discipline. And everyone must be involved. We talk about that. If you are a part of Living Stones, if you are a believer, if you've received this gospel and you're following Christ, then you need to be in discipleship. You need to be in this relationship. But the process of discipline, if you want to know more about that, you can look to Matthew 18. It's a great piece where Jesus talks about this process and how it happens. And it says, first you go one to one. This person, it's not just that they they have sin in their life that they're repenting of, that they're dealing with, that they're struggling with. It's that someone has sin in their life, they're not dealing with it, it's ongoing, it's unchanging. And so you go to them one to one. After you go to them one to one, that doesn't change, you go to them two to one. And if that doesn't change anything, then you go to them as a church to one. And then the very last step of that is if they still choose to remain in that, they still choose not to repent, as if they're removed from the body. And that's what Paul tells us to do here. And I don't think we get this. And the reason I think we don't get this is because we don't understand what the church truly is. We don't understand how much we need the church. And the best illustration I can think of this is if, if we're all out to sea, right? We're out to sea together. We're all in this boat. We're all in the same boat. And we're protected as long as we stay in the boat. I mean, these are shark-infested waters that we're traveling through. But as long as we stay in the boat and as long as we stay together, there's protection within that. We need each other to help each other to move forward, to continue on this water. 
But if we go outside the boat, we're vulnerable. We're in the waters. The shark's in the waters. The world is in the water. The enemy is in the water. They're there to tempt us, and we need to maintain this togetherness, maintain this collectiveness. And so what Paul is saying here is we remove that protection. We cannot operate, we cannot live our life as a Christian outside of the body. And I know people over and over, I've heard it over and over. Now this is between me and God, I don't need to be part of a church. It can be about me and God, it can't. You cannot demonstrate the gospel, you cannot respond to the gospel accordingly on your own. You need the body, you're desperate for the body as well. That's how God's designed it, that's what we need. And we need to believe that and we need to accept that. Look at verse 4. It says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So in that same illustration, it's like this person is amongst us, is in the body, there's unrepentant sin. Not only are we putting them in the water, but they're actually bleeding. <laughs> right? These are shark-infested waters, they're bleeding in the boat, and we're taking them and we're setting them out, out of the boat, into the water, and they're bleeding in the water, and the sharks are coming. It's like as if what's happening here is the church is no longer the agent of discipline, and God in His sovereignty says, I'm going to use the devil, I'm going to use the enemy to come and to, to basically kill his flesh, to kill the sinful desire in this individual. And so the church is releasing them, the church is letting go, and Satan is going to do what we didn't do. But God is going to use him. That shows God's sovereignty and God's ability to bring good from all things and be able to care for his children. So as we do that, there will be consequences. As you remove someone, as you deliver them over, there's going to be consequences in their life. They're going to feel the full weight of this unrepentant sin. They're no longer going to have the protection of the church. It's almost like, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. I'm going to let you waller in your sin. All right? And you're going to feel the full weight. And there's going to be spiritual consequences. There's going to be uh, physical consequences. There's going to be social consequences. There'll be all types of burdens that they'll bear because they're outside of the protection of the church. So why would we do this? This is an awful thing. And I'm reading through this, I'm looking for a loophole, I'm like, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. But we do this, as you look at verse 5, the very end of it, it says, so that, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We have to have an eternal perspective. We have to think more than just about the moment. We have to think about eternity. We have to think more than just for the individual. We have to think about the gospel. So we want the best for this individual, but we also want the best for the gospel. And we have to think eternally. So that's the situation. And that's the response. So why do we resist this? Have you ever seen this in a church? Have you seen this happen? Is this something that you're aware of, that you've experienced it? heard preached about this is not something that we want to do and I think beyond just not knowing about it I think the biggest issue is our culture is our individualism all right and we tend to say well who am I to do that I'm not going to confront somebody and we, we, we hide our pride in this cloak of humility we, we act like we're humble and I'm not going to speak into their lives I mean you know who am I and I've got sin in my life I'm not going to do that but it's pride it's that we don't want to confront them because we're ashamed ourselves because we're fearful for ourselves and I think underneath that is this idea that we make our own standards 
In our culture, we decide what's right for us. We might take a little bit from Scripture, we take a little bit from our family, we take a little bit from the culture and say, okay, these are my rules for my life, this is how I'm going to live, and I get to make up my own life. It's internal, it's what I think is right. Whereas as you think about cultures in the past, or if it was a divine standard, divine way to behave, or whether it was based on the culture, they would take what was normal and they would have to change themselves to adapt to it. So we like to make our own and ask the culture to adapt to us. So when someone's thinking this and you confront them, they're like, hey, 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 that's, that's between me and God, okay? All right, God will judge me. Don't speak to me. That's between me and God. They say, you haven't been through what I've been through. You have no idea what my life looks like. Don't judge me. That's between me and God. And then I've heard, it's just my personality. I know, I know I keep doing this. I know it's not right. But it's just the way God made me. And maybe God just wants to demonstrate His grace by continuing to forgive me in this sin. And it's just the way I am. That's my personality. So that's the first. We set our own standard. But then in addition to setting our own standard, we also think that we have more responsibility only for ourselves. I am not responsible for you. You're not responsible for me. I have my own set of moral standards and I'll take care of myself. It's my problem. It's my sin. I'll address it. And so we excuse ourselves. It's not my responsibility. I mean, who am I to cast the first stone? Uh, who am I to speak? I mean, I've got other sins in my life. I'm not going to speak to them about these sins in their lives. And I wanted to share this quote from Gandhi. Because on the outside, it sounds very wise. But it's completely missing a biblical perspective. He says, I look only to the good qualities of men. Not being faultless myself, I won't presume to probe into the faults of others. Don't get into my issues, I won't get into yours. But that's not a biblical perspective for those in the body. And so the result is when we make up our own standard and when we won't speak, when we keep our own standard and we won't take responsibility for those in the body, for our brothers and sisters, the, 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 the result is, is that sin goes unaddressed. Sin just continues on, we don't address it, and sin just exists in the body and it grows in the body and it comes to this point where it begins to be unrepentant and it just continues and it continues and it spreads. And Paul is like, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know this gospel? Don't you understand this gospel? Don't you understand the implications of sin? And so for the reason, as we saw in in verse 5, was there needs to be restoration. It's so that the Spirit may be saved in this day of judgment. But beyond just that individual and beyond His Spirit, it also has implications for the church. And so that's what Paul goes into in this verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what Paul is talking about here is this Jewish celebration of Passover. And Passover was a time where they looked back to their deliverance. They looked back to their salvation being brought from Egypt, where they were given freedom out of Egypt. And so every year they would celebrate this time of deliverance, their salvation that they had, how God had saved them. 
and it was this week-long event. So before Passover, the, they were actually commanded to cleanse out their house, and they would clean their house of all leaven in the house. And this leaven became a, a symbol, a sign of sin. And the reason they would clean out the leaven was because the day after the Passover, when they had to leave Egypt, they left so quickly, they couldn't allow their bread to rise. There was no yeast in their bread, so they took their bread with them, but it didn't rise, it didn't have leaven. And so they would clean their house, they would rid the house of all the leaven. And then this Passover came, and for the week that followed, they would celebrate the Passover. They would look back to this salvation. And the only way that you could participate in this salvation, in this celebration, was if there was no leaven in your house. You couldn't have bread, you couldn't use bread that had leaven in it. It wasn't part of the celebration. You, you cannot be a part of it. And so what Paul is saying, he says, now Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's who we look back to. That's who we celebrate. And the Passover is not for a week. Passover is for a lifetime. As we've come to Christ, we've received this gospel. Now we need to go. We need to cleanse the house. We need to clean out our lives. We need to continue to progressively do that to get rid of this leaven, to get rid of this sin that's in our lives and that's in the body so that we can participate in this celebration, so that we can participate in the gospel. And if we don't deal with that, if we don't address that, we can't... We can't participate in the salvation. We can't celebrate the salvation that we've been given. And I want to be very clear. It's not that there can't be sin in your life. There is sin in our life. We sin. We sin today. We'll sin tomorrow. Okay? And particularly what it's talking about here is this unrepentant sin. This sin that someone won't address. It's sin that even though you've been confronted with it, you refuse to admit it. You refuse to repent of it. And you refuse to change. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? Not the sin that we sin tomorrow and we were broken about it. We repent for it. God gives us forgiveness. It's ongoing sin. That's what prevents us from participating in our Passover and participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if a member in the church has this unrepentant sin, it's not just that that member doesn't get to participate in the gospel. It's that we as a church are brought into that. It's part of our body. The bread represents the church. And if there's unrepentant sin in the church, then we don't demonstrate the gospel. We don't get to participate in that celebration. We're limited from experiencing the freedom that comes from Christ. In verse 11, Paul says, And I'm writing you not to associate. And I want to explain what that means. If this happens in our body, and someone is removed, and someone is delivered over, it's not that they're excommunicated. It's not that we no longer talk to them. It's not that we interact with them. As you look at other places in Scripture that talks about discipline, it's that you would treat them as an outsider. You would treat them as not a member of the body. It's not shunning. Okay, we would continue to have relationship. You would continue to engage them. You would be encouraged if they came to hear the Word of God. But there are certain things that they wouldn't be able to participate in because they're not a family member at that point. So they lose their privilege as a member of the family. They lose the protection that we talked about as a member of the family. And they lose their place. In a sense, they're no longer spiritually a brother and a sister. We're waiting for, for the enemy to have his way with them so they might repent, so they might be come back into our family. And so that's a lot of explanation. What, what does that mean for us now? We're not going through this. This is not... Usually you hear this message preached when there's an issue in the church and they have to explain what's going on, okay? 
but we're talking about judging for restoration. All right? And so what does this mean for us? It means that we have to be ready to look at the sin in each other's lives. We have to be ready to speak to that. We can't come to a place where we said, peace, I'm at peace with the sin in my life. I give up, I fly the white flag, I'm just going to go on, I've just got to sin this way, I can't do anything about it, and I'm just going to engage in it now. And I hope that God gets, gets glory for all the grace He's given me as I continue in this sin. We can't do that. We can't be at peace with our sin. We have to fight it. We have to continually be struggling against it. The Holy Spirit, God's grace, would allow us to deal with that. And that we would not allow living stones to come to a place where we would be like this church in Corinth. That we would be bragging about what God is doing here. That we'd be bragging about how God shows up and what He does in this community if we haven't looked inside and we're not dealing with the sin in our own lives. And people ask me all the time, what's God's will for my life? And I can tell you without a doubt, every time, what God's will is for your life. And you maybe think, you guys want, might want to line up after so I can tell you one by one. And you think, well, is this guy gifted? How is he going to know that? But God's word tells us that His will for your life is your sanctification. His will for your life is to look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That there would be sin removed, that your flesh would be killed, and you'd be looking more and more like Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's clear. That's for all of us. We're all to be progressing. We're all to be changing. We're all to be addressing the sin that's in our lives. And we need the body to do that. So this morning, is there sin that you're neglecting? Is there sin in your life that you're not dealing with? Is there sin in your life that's bordering, that's bordering on this unrepentance? Are you making peace with your sin? And now think outside of yourself. As you've interacted with each other, has there been things in each other's lives that you've seen repeatedly that you see the sin in each other's life? But you've ignored it. I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm not going to bring that up. Who am I to talk about that? You know, that's for them to deal with. And I would tell you, you need to address that. If we don't deal with it, we're hindering ourselves. We're hindering our sanctification. We're hindering the sanctification of this church collectively as a body. And we're hindering our display and our demonstration of the gospel. We're holding God back. He wants us to be sanctified. We have to take caution here. Because we could turn to be very legalistic. All right? And we don't need to do that. We need to point to each other to speak in each other's lives according to the Word of God. I've told you guys that before over and over in discipleship. We don't share our opinions. We don't share our thoughts. We share the Word of God. But we also need to be careful that we don't share our personal convictions about the Word of God. Okay? We need to share things that are truths, things that are clear. And not things that, well, this is what I'm doing, what I've chosen to do. I won't go to an R movie, and you shouldn't go to an R movie. Like, that's, that's our personal convictions, okay? The, the Word of God doesn't say don't go to R movies, all right? So it's not that we're pointing out everything that we don't like about the other individual or everything that we don't like in their life. It's that I see this clearly here in the Word of God, and I see this in your life, and I want to come alongside you. How can I help you address this, Okay? And the way we're set up in discipleship, I want to make sure you guys don't do this as well. I don't need to see something in Mark's life, and I see this repeatedly in his life. I, wow, I see that here, I see it repeatedly, it needs to be addressed, 
But Trent disciples him. I'm going to go talk to Trent, and Trent will deal with that with him. Okay? If you see it, if you're interacting with them, and you've noticed it, and you've experienced it, then speak it to them. Okay? We have these relationships to ensure discipleship, but we are all collectively doing this together. So that's why we have to do this. We have to feel uncomfortable. We have to trust God. And I don't understand this. I don't understand what it would look like to hand someone over to Satan and how that works and how does God restore that person and how does God in His sovereignty work all that out? I don't know. And if somebody tells you they can explain that exactly, they haven't gotten it from here. But we have to come to a point where we trust God. This is what He tells us to do. This is what He's explained to us. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to address sin. And if we don't address sin in this body, it leads to unrepentant sin. And so we're to be on guard in each other's lives. We're to do that together. We need each other to do that. And so as I finish up, I want to talk about the last part. What does this mean for people in the church versus people outside the church, for insiders and outsiders? Because Paul addresses it. And I think it's something that we, as a church, have gotten completely upside down and wrong. As you look at verse 9, Paul clarifies, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would have to go out of the world. Paul is saying, you're not to gather in this Christian bubble and do life just with each other. You're to be engaged in the world. You're to be in relationship and interacting with and doing life with those outside of the church, with those that have all of these sins in their life. We're not to remove ourselves from the world. And he says, as we do that, we are not to judge them. All right? We are not in our unbelievers' life to, to be able to speak and, and point out things with our bony finger of condemnation say, oh, this is what's wrong in your life and this needs to change in your life. They are not part of the body. They're not, they're not to celebrate this gospel. They haven't received this. They haven't been made a new creation. God will judge them. He says at the very end in verse 13, God judges those outside. That's not our job. That's not our responsibility. And I think an example of this that we've messed up as the church in general, and this is something that I've had conversations with a few people in this body, and I've experienced this myself within my own family, within uh, as the church has interacted with my family, and it's, it's the idea of with the homosexual community. The church stands on its soapbox and points at them and condemns them and speaks evil against them. And they're outside the church. They're not in the church. We have no right to stand there and to judge and to speak against them, to speak evil against them. Like we are to come alongside and we're to love them. And we're to wait for that opportunity to share the gospel, to speak grace into their life, to speak that truth. But we're not to condemn them. We're not to judge them. And I have rarely seen this. But I had the opportunity when I was at Moody, one of my classmates, his name was Andrew Marin. And I sat in several classes with him, and he was actually at that point writing this book. And it was called uh, Love is an Orientation. And I would encourage any of you guys to read it, if that's something that you've interacted with in the homosexual community. His entire ministry, his entire foundation that he's established, he was in school at Wheaton, and in three months, his three best friends, back to back to back months, all came out to him that they were gay. He was broken. He, was, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do with his faith. How was he supposed to interact with them? What was his life supposed to look like? How was, he didn't know what to do. 
And the first thing he did was he went to God's Word. And he realized, he said, I'm supposed to love them. I'm supposed to engage with them. And he actually decided to relocate, to move into this area of Chicago called Boys Town. And it's the area of Chicago that is the gay neighborhood. As you go on the L, all of the, the lampposts have rainbow colors. It's designated. This is the gay neighborhood of Chicago. This is where you come. And so he moved into that neighborhood. And he began this ministry. And the whole purpose of his ministry is to build bridges that have been torn down. It's to build these bridges between the church and the homosexual community. That there would be this opportunity for engagement. Because right now there's no engagement. How do we look for that opportunity to engage our neighbors? It's not through judgment. We can't look at our neighbors next door and judge them for what they're doing and judge them for the films that they're making. We have to look for opportunities to connect with them, look for opportunities to engage, look for opportunities to love them. We're not to judge them. And how crazy would it be? And this is what we've done as a church. As we've said and we judge others and we point to others. And all the while, we're gutless to deal with sin in our own body. We're gutless to deal with our sin. We're gutless to deal with sin in the body. And it just exists. And yet we're looking out. And we're judging outwards. When all the time, we should be judging the body. We should be speaking in each other's lives. And let God take care of the world. We're just supposed to love them. So the bottom line for all of this is love. And I can say that confidently because even in this discipline, even in removing someone from the body, even in this last step, it's love. God disciplines those He loves. I discipline my children because I love them. Because I want them to be sanctified. I want them to be able to be obedient. God does the same in our lives. He disciplines us because He loves us. And we need to look at that and consider that within the body. How do we interact and how do we speak in each other's lives? And we should do it not out of fear, not out of, I feel uncomfortable, but out of love. We don't love God enough to surrender our lives to Him. And so sin continues to exist in our lives and we trash the gospel. We don't love each other to speak truth in each other's lives. And so sin remains in the church and we trash the gospel. We interact with our neighborhood, with our, those outside the church, and we don't have the, we can't control ourselves and we judge them instead of restraining our judgment. We don't look inside and we trash the gospel. And so I want us to love. I want us to love God. I want us to love each other. I want us to love those in our neighborhood that are inside the church, that are outside the church. It doesn't matter, but it does look different depending on who they are. But we have to love like that. We have to trust God at His Word, and we have to love in that manner. And I don't want us to back away from it. Because if we back away from it, we can't point to this salvation. We can't point to this gospel that we are claiming. And we're limiting God. So let's pray. Father God, I, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that at times it doesn't make sense. That we don't understand every detail about everything. But Lord, as we have considered this passage, as we consider this text, Lord, Lord, it's clear that we are to speak into each other's lives. Lord, that it should be for restoration. Lord, I pray that if there are times when we are judging each other, as we criticize and compare, Lord, I pray that you would rid that from this body, Father, that we would not judge to condemn. Lord, but that we would 
have the guts to address each other, to love each other in a way where we would speak truth in each other's life, where we would point out the things that we see that don't match your word. Lord, and I pray that as we do that, Lord, that we would do that with grace and with love with each other, Father. But that the end result of that would be that we would be sanctified and that your gospel would be glorified. Lord, show us what that looks like, Lord. I pray that this body would look and appear different than any body we've ever experienced, Lord. Lord, show us what that looks like in our relationships. Show us what that looks like as we deal with those outside the church, as we love on this neighborhood, and as we demonstrate and proclaim your gospel. Father, we do all this because we're humble. We do all this because you've asked us to and we want to submit to you, Father. So give us grace, Lord, to do this in a way that would honor you. Lord, may we look into our lives and when we look into the life of this church, Lord, and may we remove the leaven, may we remove the sin, Father. May it not spread amongst us. Lord, give us eyes to see. And give us grace to act. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.